Brother Newell did it. Yeah, on his own. Yeah. Perfect. Let's take a few let's take a few minutes and rejoice in some further aspects of being born again and we'll sing a couple of songs before we go home. He wants to hear you lead a song, Eric. And we just did three, but we'll do another one or two before we leave. There's singing has its purpose and it's to teach and admonish one another uh, in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. That's why there's three hymnals. Uh, three songbooks that we have in our pews. But let's let's take a few more minutes and think about being born again and actually try to get to dealing with some of the important issues. We are progressing through a logical progression of how we teach and defend our doctrine of regeneration. The last point that was made before we took our break was to look at some sample texts that are abused by some to teach heresies of regeneration. Now we progress to examples of those born again by various proofs without any means. And very quickly, so that I can make some progress, we read about John the Baptist having his mother filled with the Holy Spirit and John leaping for a fruit of the Spirit called joy in his mother's womb when Mary saluted her. He knew he was in the presence of his Lord by the Holy Spirit's power and leaped for joy. We believe that John the Baptist was born again in his mother's womb. We believe that Cornelius, according to Acts chapter 10 and the first two verses, was born again before Peter preached the gospel to him. Did Peter save Cornelius? Don't be hasty. Did Peter save Cornelius? Yes and no. Yes in conversion, no in regeneration. Look at Acts chapter 10. There's a whole chapter written about an Italian in the book of Acts. And this Italian was born again by the power of God without the gospel and without a gospel preacher and without a piano or an organ or a praise band. He was born again by the power of God. We find him introduced to us in Acts 10 verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He sees, he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And the gospel brings to us the information on the things that God wants us to do to please Him more perfectly. Not the things to do to get a new nature that would fear God because He already feared God. And remember, God only hears the prayers of the righteous. His prayers were heard. God only accepts the charity of the righteous. His alms were accepted with God. You say, are you sure of that? I'm sure of it. Look at verses 34 and 35 as Peter describes Cornelius. 
Acts 10.34, Then Peter opened his mouth, this is before he preached the gospel, and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But even in Italy, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The text truly says, But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted. That's a perfect tense verb construction, meaning it's an action that was completed in the past and is still true in the present. The is is present. The accepted is past. The two combined are the present perfect tense of an action performed in the past, still true in the present. Peter immediately knew, because he had a vision up on his housetop about a sheet coming down with, with uh, unclean animals, that God had cleansed this family that he was going to meet and that Cornelius was already accepted in the sight of God based on two evidences. He feared God and he worked righteousness. If a man works righteousness, he's righteous. He's already been born again. If a man fears God, when Romans 3.18 says there is no fear of God before their eyes, he's already born again in order to fear God. It's so simple. You know what everyone else does with Acts 10? They want to go to the end because Peter saved them. And we agree. We just rightly divide the word of truth that the salvation was only conversion and God had worked the regeneration. The purpose of the gospel was never intended to give life, but to bring it to light. Which verse would you like to look at? How about Romans 1? Romans chapter 1, very quickly. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 Paul wasn't ashamed of preaching the gospel because it revealed the power of God saving men. He wasn't trying to get anyone saved by going to Rome to preach because look who he said he wanted to preach to in verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He didn't say, I'm planning to go to Haywood Mall or a jail or a brothel and preach the gospel. I want to meet you folks because from faith to faith, I'm able to convey things to you as the previous four verses describe. He wanted to preach the gospel to the church at Rome because in the gospel, which means good news or glad tidings, is conveyed the information about the power of God that saved us. Because it is power that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. It is power that regenerates us. It is power of Jesus dying on the cross and ascending up into heaven at God's right hand to sprinkle His blood for the remission of our sins. There is no power in the gospel itself. You can preach it for your entire life to the same person, and unless God regenerates them, it is going to be to them every single minute foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're we're progressing through a series of arguments to prove that being born again is the operation of God without the cooperation of man, and it does not involve the gospel. A man needs to be born again first. 1 Corinthians 1. Let's let's look at 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man. What is a natural man? A man not born again. He's just natural. He He has two natural parents. He's been brought into human existence, but he's not born again. He's not a spiritual man. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 
He doesn't receive them. Even if the Spirit of God is assisting your preaching or your evangelism, He does not receive them. You say, even too much for the Holy Spirit? Yes, too much for the Holy Spirit. Do you know how the Holy Spirit gets over that little problem? He regenerates them. Everyone that He wants to receive the truth, He regenerates them. Even the Holy Spirit cannot teach a natural man the truth. Can you read it with me? The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for, and here's the explanation, they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You have to have spiritual capacity to receive spiritual truth. And so what will you do to explain to a natural man something he needs to do to please God in order to become a spiritual man? Nothing. God makes that difference. And so we back up now into chapter 1 and see statements like this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now wait a minute. I thought the preaching of the cross was to them that perish the means of salvation. No. If a man is perishing, it's foolishness to him. You cannot save him by the gospel. But... Unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Saved people benefit by hearing the preaching of the gospel because, again, it's conveying information and educating them about the power of God in their salvation. This verse is read backwards by everyone that uses it, except us. This verse is teaching the gospel does not save men. It shows men how they were saved. And the only ones that receive it or believe that were born again previously, those which are saved. Verse 24. Well, let's get 22. The Jews require a sign. Here's a market survey done by God about evangelistic efforts. The Jews require a sign. If you want to influence Jews, then you needed to perform a bunch of miracles. The Greeks seek after wisdom. You had to get down on the base animalistic brute level of the philosophers of Athens and Alexandria. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we don't give either of them what they're looking for. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, that message is a stumbling block because they'd rather have miracles. Unto the Greeks, it's foolishness because they'd rather listen to the hallucinations of their friends. But unto them which are called, that is those appointed and ordained and regenerated to eternal life, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The gospel is received by those called of God as the demonstration of Jesus Christ, God's power, and Jesus Christ, God's wisdom. If a man's not born again and he's a Jew, it's a stumbling block to him. If a man's not born again and he's a Greek, it's foolishness to him. This is all perception. How is the gospel received by men not born again? A stumbling block or foolishness? How about men who are ordained to eternal life? It's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And we could multiply these verses out. The the purpose of the gospel was never intended to give life. Oh, we need that one verse, don't we? 2 Timothy chapter 1, I think I hear a yes. 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, so that we can understand the purpose of the gospel. Verse 9 tells us how we're saved. 
Who hath saved us? Speaking of God, who's the last word in verse 8. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. We are called to be the holy sons of God. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. God has a purpose for the salvation of some. But according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Same kind of terminology as Ephesians 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. God's purpose and grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It wasn't offered to us, it was given to us. But, verse 10, that eternal decision by God, that sending of Jesus Christ, is now made manifest. That means to make it clearly known. But it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years after creation, who hath abolished death, speaking of the Lord Jesus, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring eternal life and immortality. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. Ministers are to feed sheep. We don't make sheep. Ministers are to perfect saints. We don't make saints. God makes sheep and God makes saints by His sanctifying power. Ordinances were never intended to help. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience, so a person is already born again before they're baptized. The Lord's Supper and damn the Roman Catholic Church's Mass is only a symbolic remembrance of Jesus Christ's death. It doesn't bring the power, the efficacy, the finished work, and apply it to us. It's simply how we remember Jesus saving us. Oh, there's so many more things I have to say on this subject, but I want to get to this. How how can we prove that we're born again? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I overdid it. Does your wife ever overdo the eggs? Have mercy on us both. Say, why would you bring that up? Well, if you knew the historical context of Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees wanted to know if they had a privilege to divorce their wives for overdoing a meal. That's divorce for any cause. And Jesus had a decent answer for them. So strict was Jesus about that subject that the apostles said to him after he had stepped away, Lord, after what you just said about divorce and remarriage, it's good that a man never get married. And he said, oh, come on. No man can make a wild statement like that unless it's given to him. Why did I get off on that? Here's what we want. Eggs is what did it. Let's rip through three things and sing a couple songs. One, how can we know we're born again? Two, why were we born again? Three, what should we do about it? Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will 
and to do of His good pleasure. We, with fear and trembling, it says this in the New Testament. Fear and trembling is part of proper preaching and part of proper reacting to the preached Word. Work out your own salvation. You should be doing things to prove that you are saved, and you should be doing them with fear and trembling. And verse 13 tells us, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If you are wanting to do, and you actually do things that please God, God worked it in you. So from this text, to know that we're saved, we need to be doing and choosing and willing, not being forced, but wanting to do those things that please God. Are you doing those things that please God? The Bible tells wives how they should treat their husbands. There is no question about it. It is very clear. It is absolute. If you are not doing that, there is no evidence you're saved. You say, well, I act like I'm saved in other areas. No, 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 no. Your conscious presumption to rebel against God in this area of your life proves that in the rest you're a hypocrite. Let's get real with the Word of God. Are you pleasing God in every part of your life? Are you gracious in your speech? Are you pure in your thoughts? Are you righteous in your use of the internet? Television. Lord, help us. We want to please God in all these things. And then we know that we're born again. 1 John. 1 John. We know that God has worked something in us when we work out His good pleasure. Oh, let's do the pleasure of God the rest of this day and the rest of our lives. 1 John and verse 4, I mean chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now the verb... Love comes in front of the verb being born of God. Does that mean you love in order to get born of God? Or is this another perfect tense construction, meaning that when you love, you're showing that you're born of God? Yes and yes. 1 John 4, 7. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. How do we know that we're born of God? We love the brethren. Look at 3.14. John wrote much about love as an evidence of eternal life in his first epistle. 1 John 3.14. We know. See, we're talking about us and our assurance. We know that we have passed from death unto life. We've been born again because that is to be quickened. To go from death to life is to be quickened because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. He's not born again. You must be showing love toward one another. Get over yourselves. The more that you can love another, and to do it because they're a fellow believer, to do it because that's your family, God is honored. You're proving your regeneration. Because natural men do not do that. They only hang with each other because of something stupid like DNA, or they hang with each other because they get something out of each other. Our DNA is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we love each other and serve each other on that basis, He is going to put us as sheep at His right hand, and He's going to say, when we ask Him, we never did anything good towards you, He will say, because ye did it to the least of these my brethren, ye did it to me. 
That's how serious this issue is for us to know that we're born again. Look at 1 John 2.29. If ye know that He is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. There is that construction again. The verb doing righteousness comes before is born of Him. But which one truly comes first? Are we born of God and then we live a righteous life? Or do we live a righteous life in order to be born of God? I hope that no one has a question about that. We're born of God and then we do righteousness. And thus we understand the perfect tense without taking an English course over again. Because when it says is born, the, the birth has already taken place in the past and is still true in the present. That's why it says is born, passive voiced verb of being birthed by a power outside of yourself and you know it because you're living righteously. Look at three, chapter 3 and verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He has a righteous new man inside of him that doesn't allow him to continue in a course of sin without grief, guilt, and repentance. It doesn't mean he never sins absolutely. It means he never sins habitually and continues in it, running down that road of sin perpetually. Because look at chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin. Oh, so it says if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So 2-1 needs to be reconciled with 3-9. So 3-9 is not absolute perfection because that's impossible. No one in the Bible lived that way. When we look at chapter 1, it says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I've preached through these verses before. 3.9, when it says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, does not commit sin habitually without grief, guilt, and repentance. Right. Strong. It's not, these aren't my words, and I am not going to back off the Word of God. Amen. That's what it says. If you can continue in a course of sin and it not bother you, if you can continue in a dead, carnal way of living and it doesn't bother you, you're not born again. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, let's not go to that one, let's look at Galatians 6.15. Galatians 6.15. While you're look, turning to it, I'll quote you 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Are you living like a new creature? Is your life new? Are you showing that you've been renewed, that you've been regenerated, that you've been quickened, that you've been born again because there's a second you around that does what is right? Lord, help us to do that. To prove that you're born again, you need to walk in the Spirit. We don't just live in the Spirit. You're at Galatians 6. Look back at Galatians 5. It says in verse 25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit is to be born again and have the Spirit inside us. But we should also walk in that Spirit every day. And you can grieve that Spirit. That is a personal offense. 
You can quench that spirit, referring to the spirit as a flame or a fire or power. You can quench it. So one is against power or heat or flame, and one is against a person. Because you grieve a person, you quench fire. You can do that to the Holy Spirit's power in your life. We're supposed to be walking according to that spirit. We have a warfare going on inside of us, and it's described in verse 16 and 17. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Is that the same thing as he's saying in 25? Yes. Let us walk after the Holy Spirit's direction for our lives. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're doing what the Spirit of God wants you to do and teaches you to do, by the Word of God, you won't be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Is that, is that true of you? It's true of me. There's a warfare going on inside. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. And the Spirit, according to the text, against the flesh. Amen. I love that warfare from that side of it. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that she cannot do the things that she would. You cannot do them perfectly, because you've got this flesh warring against you. But you can do them imperfectly, and God takes care of the rest. And the list of the things of the flesh are taught here. If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Verse 19, and there's a long list of the things that are the works of the flesh that we should not do. Then in verse 22, there's a list of nine fruit aspects of fruit of the Holy Spirit that we should do. And there's no law against them. That's how you know you're born again. Are are those, those things characterizing your life? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Are you a super loving person? That means you fulfill the 15 phrases of the one sentence about love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Are you a super loving person? Are you full of joy? Are you happy? Excited? Enthusiastic? Glad? Peace? Are you a peacemaker? Everywhere you go, are you at peace with everyone? Peace with your spouse? Peace with your children. Peace with your church. Peace with your parents. Peace. That's how you know. Because guess what? Do you know why it's listed like that? No one out there that's not born again lives by these nine defined by God. I don't care if they say I love peace. I don't care if they say I'm happy. I don't care if somebody else says about them they're so happy. Uh Uh-uh. That's a court jester. That isn't the joy that's talked about here. This joy here is joy in God, joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, and joy that is the strength of holy living. Let's prove that we're born again. We believe the gospel. We add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. We add those eight things, and Second Peter chapter 1 says that if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Right. Isn't that amazing? I listened to a crazy sermon last night by somebody that once pastored you about 10 years ago and uh, couldn't believe him going off on that particular passage. The average soul-winning preacher, when he finishes and is making his invitation, he says, Sinner, do you understand the plight that you're in today? That if you walk out of here and you haven't met with Jesus and invited Him into your heart, you're going to go to hell. Now there's nothing you can do except invite Jesus into your heart. 
Well, now make up your mind. Is there nothing you can do? Or is there something you have to do? Now I want the Word of God. You know what the Word of God says? If you do these things, you shall never fall. I love that. If you do these things, you shall never fall. There are absolutely things you need to be doing not to earn your way to heaven. Oh, no one's going to earn their way to heaven. Jesus Christ purchased heaven for us. But oh, it's how we know and make our calling and election sure is by doing things. Absolutely. And that just crushes the easy believism, quick prayerism that has destroyed Christianity in America. This loving cotton candy God of theirs that wants to save everybody but can't save anybody unless you save yourself. And you can save yourself in three seconds down front by saying, Jesus, save me. That lie that has told so many people that they're on their way to heaven when they're not on their way to heaven. Let me show you what this what happened to me when I was 19 years old and I was learning these things for the first time and I found this text. Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 22. This text lit me up and it is so true. Though I'm going to tell you in its context specifically, it is referring to the lying prophets of Israel that were telling them they were not going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar but they would have peace. But I'm using it as a principle of the the false gospel that's out there. Watch this verse. Ezekiel 13, 22, Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. The prophet here is saying, the false prophets are telling lies that Egypt's going to bail them out and they're not, you're not going to be destroyed by Babylon. In fact, you're going to be destroyed. And you are messing up the hearts of the righteous because the righteous know destruction is coming. It was prophesied. And you've strengthened the hands of wicked men so there's no reason for them to repent and turn from their wickedness because you've promised them life. The preservation of Jerusalem. But now just apply that principle to the gospel that's being preached today. With lies, sinner, say this prayer. Stay in your seat and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I trust you as my Savior. Amen. Goodbye. Because with lies, ye have made the heart of the righteous sad. The righteous know that they were saved by something far greater than a little decision for Jesus. And their hearts are made sad by hearing a pitiful, effeminate, begging, long-haired, hermaphrodite Jesus. Their hearts are made sad. They want to hear about a God that rules all things, who doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? They want to hear about a potter and some clay. And they rejoice when they hear that message. But with lies, ye have made the heart of the righteous sad. This easy believism, a feminine Arminian gospel, makes the heart of the righteous sad, and God did not make their heart sad. God made their hearts glad by His almighty power on their behalf. And that gospel strengthens the hands of the wicked that they shouldn't return from His wicked way. Here's how it goes. It's nice to see that you came forward, Bobby. 
Let's get down on our knees right here and get you right with God so that you can know that you're born again and you're going to heaven when you die. Say after me, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Will you be my Savior? Will you be my Savior? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Bobby, you're on your way to heaven. The angels right now are getting writing cramped by writing your name in the book of life. You are on your way to heaven if you go out of here. And Bobby, I want to tell you one more thing. Since I've told you one lie, will you let me tell you another one? Sure, Pastor. The other lie is once saved, always saved. See, Bobby, because you did this, it doesn't matter how you live, Bobby. Just go out there and here, here. Give me your Bible. Let me write today's date in the fly leaf and, I, and I'll sign it. And you can get my signature free. I'll sign it, Bobby. So you're, you're now saved, Bobby. Your name's in the book of life. And see, we believe here the doctrine of once saved, always saved. You can live any way you want. Does the Bible teach that anywhere? Not a chance that you can live any way you want. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Why are we born again? To bring forth good works. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Mentioned to you last Lord's Day, I believe, by Brother Newell. Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses are about being born again. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Do you know that God's been working on you? And I don't mean teasing you, playing with you, begging you. I mean, He's worked you over. He's renewed you. He's regenerated you. Because you are His workmanship. He's refashioned you if you're born again. For we are His workmanship created. Now, does created sound like begged? Pleaded with? It's created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We've been quickened into life, verse 1. We've been created in verse 10. Unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is so exciting. God's regenerated us to have on this planet His children. And He looks forward to our lives every day reflecting Him to the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. I gave you some verses last night that are dear verses to me. Matthew chapter 5, be ye perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. How are we perfect in the context of that Matthew 5, 43 through 48? We love our enemies. Who is an enemy of yours? Love them right now. Forgive them right now. Pray for them right now. Does it say all that in the context? Absolutely it does. Do good to them that despitefully use you. Pray for them that curse you. Love them that hate you. And just go, it's a nice little statement there because God does it showing his character by sending his sunshine to rain on the evil and the good every day. God sends that sweet, warm, loving kiss on their cheeks of atheists every day in Greenville County. We can love our enemies. And when we do so, we show that we're of the same nature as God. We're of the same character as God. God is love. And yes, he does love his enemies, but it's in a very limited, you know what it said? He sends rain. He sends sunshine and food to fill their hearts with, and, and food and rain from heaven to fill their hearts with food and gladness. And when they don't give him honor and glory for being such a good, benevolent being, he will cast their souls into hell and they will be forever worthy of that punishment 
For along with everything else, they have rejected his overtures of kindness in natural creation. This to me is so exciting. Look at, look at 5.1, Ephesians 5.1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. What does that verse mean to you? Do you blast past Ephesians 5.1 because you want to get over to verse 2 and walk in love? I mean, walking in love is being part of God's child. But look at verse 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. There's obedient children. There's dear children. There's good children. We want to be the children of God and be his dear children. We're all, de- we're all dear in a legal way. We're all dear in a vital way. But are we all dear children in a practical way? Are there any, is there anyone here that's ever wanted to please their father on earth? So that your dad would be proud of you? I hate that word, but so that your dad would be proud of you? Your dad would be happy with you, excited about you? What about our Father in heaven? Amen. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Let's follow God and do things His way and be His dear children. Let's have Him look at this church and see, for His glory only, the greatest group of people following Him with the greatest zeal and causing Him great delight. Amen. That's our goal. In 1 Peter 1.14, similar language is used to describe obedient children. There are disobedient children. When children are disobedient, what does he have to do to them? Spank them, chasten them, scourge them. Pretty strong word. Scourge is the one used in Hebrews chapter 12. This is why we were born again. To cry, Abba, Father, and to live like it every day. To cry out, Abba, Father from the Holy Spirit inside of us, knowing that we're born again, shedding abroad God's love for us into every nook and cranny of our hearts. And we cry back, Abba, Father, Lord God of heaven, Jehovah, I know you're my Father, and I want to please you. Forgive me where I have sinned against you, and help me do those things that are so hard, but I can do them because you've given me sufficient strength through your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. And we got, we got to live that way every day. That's why we were born again. We weren't born again so that we could blast away about regeneration before faith. We were born again so that we would live like we were regenerated with our faith. What should we do about it? He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1. What should we do about it? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's regeneration and conversion. Because God's done that to us, let me quote it again, since you've never heard it before. Second Thessalonians 2.13, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God, because God's regenerated us, because He's gone on and converted us, we are bound to give thanks always. Let's be thankful that our names are written in the book of life. That's a legal salvation and an eternal salvation and a final salvation. Let's be thankful that we were born again and given a new nature. And then he sent the gospel to us for us to embrace it. Let's thank him for saving us from all the false lies around us and for regenerating us and not leaving us just in the flesh where we will drop into hell and drop further and drop further and drop further because there is nothing underneath 
But for us, underneath are the everlasting arms. And he will never lose one of them. Jesus swore that he would never lose one of them because his Father had given him to save every one of them in John chapter 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death shall have no power. That second death is the most terrible thing described in the Bible when men are cast into the lake of fire to spend eternity in the lake of fire. It's called the second death. This is the second death. It's very carefully and clearly explained. But let me repeat verse 6 of Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, those that are born again, those that have been resurrected spiritually the first time, on such, the second death hath no power. Praise God. Eric, will you come and help us bless each other just a little bit before we go?